Good morning, church. It is very good to see you this morning. I love you all, and I am glad to be able to share God's word with you today. If you open up to Titus chapter 2, we are in the second of a four-part series on the book of Titus. Today's message is called Listing the Transforming Work of God. Listing the Transforming Work of God. And we're going to be looking at Titus 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all aspects or all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are well-pleasing, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Lord, we pray that you would be here now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Your word is living and active. May it have and do its work in us today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So lists. Lists are interesting things. It's the way we organize things and keep track of information. We make all kinds of different lists, right? We have to-do lists. Some people love them. Some people hate them. But they keep us... Uh, on, on task. We have grocery lists. They never work, right? <laughs> you spend all week writing down the things you need to buy on the list on the refrigerator, and then you spend the whole time at the store walking around trying to remember what you wrote on the list that you left hanging on the refrigerator. We have top 10 lists, top 10 movies, top 10 songs of 1983, top 10 ideas for princess parties, top 10 ways to skin a cat. I, I knew there was more than one way, but I had no idea there was like a top 10. The top 10 lists just lead to arguments because everyone's list is different. We end up fighting. We have packing lists. They're, these are the lists that we make so that when we're flying someplace far from home, we remember what we forgot to pack. <laughs> but honestly, lists help us. They help us to stay on task. They keep our attention focused on things that are important. And in Titus 2, 1 to 10, Paul gives lists to different groups of people in the church. And these lists 
are actually lists of the transforming effect of the gospel on their lives. These lists remind us of the grace of God already at work in us through the gospel and a call to continue living our lives for God's glory. Now remember, Paul is intentionally setting up a contrast in the book of Titus. He's setting a contrast between life in the culture on Crete and what that looks like and what life in the church should look like. He's warned them about two things, the circumcision party and the Cretan culture. The circumcision party taught that religion is about following the right rituals. And the Cretan culture was known for describing its own people as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was their list. So Paul warns against outward adherence to religion and flat-out wickedness. And we need this warning because we're inclined to both of these things, right? We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Our hearts are inclined towards sin, whether it's just going through the motions or abandoning godliness altogether. And when we live like that, we're actually resisting the gospel that's actively at work in our hearts. And we're bringing shame to God, our Savior. But when we stay close to the gospel, the sound doctrine of God's word, it has a transformative effect on us. It not only restrains our sinful desires, it actively transforms our desires into godly desires. And suddenly, there's this running list of the effects of the gospel in our lives. And other people see that, people in the church and people outside the church. Because what we believe about the gospel affects how we live and how others perceive God. What we believe about the gospel affects how we live and it affects how others perceive God. Our belief shapes our behavior. Our behavior magnifies God's grace. What you believe about the gospel affects how you live and how others perceive God. So there are three things that we're called to in this message, our three points. Believe, live, and testify. And if you're tracking, this is a brontosaurus message, okay? So that means that the points are not even. There's not even in content. The middle point is the main bulk of the message. So as a brontosaurus message, it's going to be very thin at the front end, the first point, much, much thicker in the middle, and then thin again at the point three. So, first point, believe. We need to believe in the transforming message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have to listen to sound preaching and believe in sound doctrine. This whole section is about doctrine. It's bookended. In verse one, Paul tells Titus, teach what accords, that is in agreement with sound doctrine. Verse 10 says, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what is this sound doctrine that Paul tells Titus and the other pastors to teach? Sound doctrine is whatever is true and consistent with God's revelation of his nature and his character, his redemption, as revealed in the scriptures. Sound doctrine has authority over our lives because it's distilled from God's word. And submitting to God's word is what produces godly living in us. In Titus 1, 1 through 4, in Titus 2, 11 through 14, in Titus 3, 3 through 8, we see that sound doctrine refers to believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that saves us, transforms us, trains us, and gives us hope. We never 
get tired of recounting the gospel. In fact, every Sunday that we gather together is from beginning to end a retelling, an opportunity to reflect on the gospel. God, who is the creator of all things, including human beings who are made in his image, that's us, but we have disobeyed and sinned against God. And so we deserve God's just wrath. But God has shown unparalleled mercy and grace because Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God and is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in every way, became a human being. He was fully God and fully man. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was sinless. He took our sins on himself. He was buried and he rose from the grave to give us forgiveness and eternal life. Last week, Jim preached from John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, that means believe, in my word, that's the sound doctrine, you are truly my disciples. That means your life will reflect Christ's teaching, and you will know the truth, sound doctrine, and the truth will set you free. Jesus changes us and gives us the power to live out that change day to day. And that's what Galatians 2.20 means when it says that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're transformed and empowered by the gospel. When we believe the sound doctrine of the gospel of Christ, we receive transforming power. Now, maybe you're here and you're saying, I believe the gospel, but I just, I never change. Well, there's two things to keep in mind. First, this is a little hard, but sometimes we don't change because we don't really want to change. Jesus is offering grace to change, so we should ask ourselves, are there any areas of sin in my life that I'm hiding or harboring, that I need to repent of before the Lord, share with others, and then seek the Holy Spirit to grow in godliness? And then the second thing is, we should remember that change comes slowly. You may, you may not be coddling sin, but you still find you're always, you always seem to be falling into it. Keep fighting. Weeds don't die until the root is dead. And when you plant a new seed, it takes time to grow. David Pallison says, we are slow to change. The only one who does thoroughly understand us is God. Sometimes he helps us change rapidly, but he usually intervenes slowly to transform how a person thinks, loves, fears, wants, and trusts on a scales of years and decades over a lifetime. So believe and live according to sound doctrine and trust the Holy Spirit to keep changing and shaping you into the image of Christ. What you believe about the gospel affects how you live. And that's our second point, to live. We are called to live lives that are transformed by the power of the gospel. Beginning in verse two, Paul starts his lists. 
for Titus. And he lists the impact that his teaching of sound doctrine should have on the church. He addresses the whole church by age and by gender. And so we all today have reason to listen closely. We also see that gospel transformation happens in community. It happens through relationships. As Pastor Brian Chappell says, that interweave and influence each other in the church. He goes on to say, here, the ripple effect of godliness is obvious. Good teaching leads to more teaching. The ripple effect of godliness. I love that phrase. When you drop a stone into water, it produces a series of waves that affects a broader and broader surface in the water. That's the way godliness works in the church. Godliness is lived out in the church and it has this ripple effect that leads to godliness being lived out in people's lives. So Paul says this all begins with the older men. The older men. So older men, listen up. And for everyone else, let's not check out when others are being addressed because we should be listening so that we know how to call others to godliness and we also know the example that we're to follow. So older men, you are to be in verse two, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Let me just give a slight Side note here, another aspect of sound doctrine in which the church is to remain distinct from the culture is in the scriptural understanding that there are real, God-ordained, and unchangeable categories of men and women. Now, the world is confused about this, but God's word is not. And if you have questions about that or you feel unsure about this in your own life, please come talk to one of the pastors. We would love to care for you in that. So older men, it's, it's significant that you are addressed first because of the role that you play as examples and leaders in the church. You to be the beginning of the ripple effect of godliness. And so your list begins with being sober-minded, clear-headed, unclouded by worldly thought. The original word means temperate, which literally means holding no wine. Now John Kitchen says, in view of verse 112, which calls elders not to be drunkards, and 2.3, where older women are not to be slaves to much wine, the word may retain some of its original meaning. So you're not to be influenced by substances that inhibit your thinking and your responsible behavior. Now, I know today our culture can tend to be alcohol-obsessed, but it's also increasingly marijuana-obsessed. It's been legalized in many places, and dispensaries and CBD products are advertised everywhere. And while there are theological grounds for the godly use of alcohol, I believe that's because alcohol has a gradual effect when it's consumed. But marijuana is immediately inebriating. It immediately affects your ability to be clear-headed. Older men, we need you to be sober-minded, and younger generations need your example of facing sin and trial with strength and grace from God and not seeking escape through inebriation. Be sober-minded, and if you're wrestling with substances that affect your clear-mindedness, please bring that into the light. Older men, you're also called to be dignified, honorable, worthy of respect, avoiding foolishness and superficial things. Men, knowing who you are in Christ 
gives appropriate weight to your understanding of your life. Life has meaning and purpose. The way that you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you sacrifice for others is significant before a holy God. And other people in this room need to see you live as examples of that conviction. Whether that's in serving as a member of the church finance committee or preaching and caring for other men in the prison ministry or being a mentor to a younger man or being a faithful husband and father or grandfather, live your life with purpose and be dignified. You're called to be self-controlled. That means mastering your own urges and desires, not being driven by cravings, passions, wants, or emotions, but living with Christ as your leader. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. For we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So older men, Jesus loves you and died for you. Be controlled by the love of Christ. Not by all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Be in control of yourself. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. And you're also called to be sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. Being sound in faith is holding fast to God and especially with complete reliance on Jesus and his blood for salvation and eternal life. To be sound in love, loving your wife, loving your children, loving your church, loving your friends, and never lose your first love for Christ your Savior. Being sound in steadfastness means patiently enduring, to not give in to complaining, always being hopeful, faith-filled, cheerful, knowing that any minute your loving master may call you home, or better yet, may come back for all of us. As you grow older, do not lose heart and do not give up the faith. If your body begins to fail, live like you know that Jesus has a new one for you. If your mind begins to fail, know that the Spirit is renewing you day by day. When you face loss, when you face disease, when you face death, be steadfast. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Let us see you sound in faith and love and steadfastness to the end so we might follow in your footsteps. Now, to the older women, verses 3 and 4 says that you likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You're to teach what's good and so train the young women. Older women, you're to be reverent in behavior, similar to the older men being dignified. Your behavior is to reflect an awareness, a wonder, an awe, and a joy at God's constant presence. John Kitchen says, Such women do not compartmentalize life, but see each and every part of the day as holy to the Lord. Your reverence gives significance to all of your undertakings. You're not to be slanderers. Now this is a serious and subtle sin. Good conversation coming up in a couple Saturdays. The word for slander is diablos, which we all know is a spicy marinara sauce with fresh tomatoes, fiery chili flakes. Goes great with seafood and pasta. That's the Italian fra diablo, diablo sauce, which means among the devil. It comes from this same Greek word, diablos, which means false accuser. It's specifically used in scripture to refer to Satan. 
Older women, do not be slanderers like the devil. You're not to talk about people in ways that judge them or exaggerate their faults or demean them or misleads and lies about their character or their motives. You're to avoid talking about other people in a way that is accusatory or critical or changes others' opinions of them for the worse. The gospel has a transformative effect on the things that you talk about and the way that you talk about them. So, older women, when you talk with others, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let your speech be gracious, filled with gratitude and kindness. Let others leave a conversation with you built up. Let them be more aware of the grace in your life, of grace in their own lives, and grace in the lives of others. Your example is critical to your own holiness, and it's critical for the unity of the church. If this has been an area of temptation for you, please share it with a sister and walk in accountability. Older women, you're also called not to be slaves to much wine. Now, this was already said to the elders and the older men. I said earlier, Scripture presents alcohol as a gift for celebration and an expression of God's abundant goodness. But because of our sinful nature, uh, alcohol can be enslaving. It's not intended for escape into inebriation. When time and schedules change, when the house is an empty nest, or when loneliness or sorrow comes, you might face real temptation. And you need to be honest in your marriages and in your community. You're to be an example to younger ladies as well. The culture presents alcohol as a means to unwind, relax, or deal with stress. And so we have to be careful. Your use of alcohol should always be intentional and well thought out and be willing to abstain if necessary. I had a conversation with a couple over dinner and they said they had gone through a season in their lives where they found themselves having a drink every night, not drinking to drunkenness, but feeling every night like they needed to have a drink in order to relax and process the day. They felt convicted about the level of control or enslavement that it had over them. So they just decided it's not worth it. They stopped drinking as a means of not being mastered by anything, as 1 Corinthians 6.12 says. The word enslave here is the same word that Paul uses in Titus 1.1 when he calls himself a slave of God or a servant of God. How much better to give up enslavement to a fleeting thing and live as a slave to Christ? Older women, you're called to be teaching what is good and training the young women. Now this is another aspect of the ripples of godliness that should be present in the church. In fact, Titus, told, uh, Titus is directly told to teach some groups, but he's not told directly to teach the younger women. Now, that doesn't prohibit getting counsel across gender lines when appropriate safeguards are in place, but this is likely to maintain the role of husbands as being responsible for the primary spiritual instruction for their wives and to avoid sexual temptation. Older women, you have a responsibility to teach both directly and by example the younger women in the church. You're to be discipling and training other women. It's a commitment to the success of the next generation. 
This happens in the day-to-day life in a family when mothers are training and teaching their daughters. It happens through Bible studies and the care you extend as you pray for other ladies or bring meals for the sick, support and child, uh, child care for young mothers, um, encouragement and friendship for the discouraged. Teach good things. Teach your unwavering faith in the blood of Christ for salvation, your humble acceptance of God's sovereignty even when you don't understand the circumstances, your gratitude to God for his blessings, daily grace, and his strength. Ladies, teach, as 1 Peter 3, 4 says, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Maybe you're inspired as you hear these things and you want to think about signing up to be a mentor with the women's ministry. Or maybe it's just offering to take a a crying child during a church service so that a young mom can come and sit in the sermon with her husband. Now, there are other specific things that you are called to teach, so keep listening as we move into verse four and the list for the younger women. So, young ladies, you are called to be taught and discipled by the older women. And as we look at these categories, several of them reflect life within family and marriage. Now, that does not presuppose marriage for everyone, but it indicates that there is a common way that life is lived out and demonstrated in Genesis and throughout scripture. But single women and single men are also called to live gospel transformed lives. So while roles may be different, the call to godliness, to servanthood, to love and faith is universal, whether someone is married or not. So younger women, verses four and five says, you're called to love your husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to your own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. So younger women, the first thing you're called to learn from the older women is to love your husband and your children. Now I can see that there are some husbands, particularly newer ones, thinking, why does she need to be taught how to love me? Seems like it's not that hard. I'm a lovable guy. You are in some ways. But young women... You need to be taught, you need to be taught how to love your husband and your children because this love does not just come naturally to us. Herman Bovink says, people generally are not so lovable that we should naturally, without exertion and struggle, cherish them as we do ourselves. Indeed, the love for the neighbor can maintain itself only if on the one hand it is based on and laid upon us by the law of God, and only if on the other hand that same God grants us the desire to live uprightly according to his commandments. Young women, God commands you to love and he gives you the grace that you need to love. Remember that this was written to a culture where marriages were often arranged Scripture teaches that even in that scenario, real, committed, affectionate love is the fruit of a God-empowered, gospel-centered, covenant-keeping, servant-hearted life. It doesn't come naturally, but it is given by God, and it is to be taught in the church. 
In fact, back in May, our women's ministry blog posted Sheila George's beautiful testimony about how God produced this sort of deep love in her own marriage, which was arranged 54 years ago by her parents in India. It's well worth reading because the reality is we are dependent on God and the church for cultivating this kind of deep and sustaining love even in our own culture where marriages often begin with relationship and romance. And here, her tender reminder that love for your husband is to come before love for your children. Let your children see your evident love for your husband so that they better understand the covenant love between Christ and the church. Young women, the older and older women who are teaching them, the Lord also calls you to be self-controlled. In fact, this is actually on everyone's list. Young women, I encourage you to study 1 Timothy 2.9. Write that down, 1 Timothy 2.9. And how being self-controlled relates to being modest in your clothing choices and the way that you present your outward appearance. And that also relates to the next category, which is to be pure. Young women... The world is and long has been on a crusade against purity. It will attack your purity at every turn. But don't be deceived and don't be persuaded. Be pure, be innocent, be modest, pure mentally and physically, not defiling yourself with fantasy or images or books or films that promote sinful ideas or incite lustful feelings. Don't put yourself in any compromising situations with a man. Walk in sexual purity. Honor monogamy and marriage as the God-given context for sexual intimacy. The reward for purity is greater than anything the world can offer. Jesus promises in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Young women, you're to be taught to be working at home. Now, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to have a job outside of the house. Proverbs 31 and other scriptures clearly present women with vocations. But this is a call to make your responsible management and care for your home and your family your first priority. Career or financial advantage is to take a lower place. Young women, the investment you make in working at home, tending your marriage, raising your children, the day-to-day management of the household is a great expression of love for God and for others. The well-managed home is really the first building block and foundation of society and of the church. Your efforts are a demonstration of selfless servanthood. They're a significant shaping force in the life of your children They are a powerful investment that stabilizes life in the church by providing context for hospitality, for discipleship, and fellowship, and even being a factor in qualifying of elders in the care of the church. There's two more. Younger women, you're called to be kind. It speaks of benefiting others, not being rude or dismissive or cold or ignoring, living for their good. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In 1 Corinthians 13, kindness is an aspect of love that is patient. It doesn't insist on its own way. It rejoices in the truth. So let your kindness be rooted in the love of Christ. 
And finally, young women, you're called to be submissive to your own husband. And that's self-explanatory, so it doesn't need any comment. But I know that you love God's word and you desire to be taught, so I'll make a few remarks. This is a call for you to follow God's design for family in the home. A willingness to come under your husband's care and authority. A willingness to follow his leadership spiritually and practically. This is not a comment on equality or ability or intellect, but it's a distinction of role and responsibility. Scripture is clear in Genesis 1 and 2. Men and women are both created in the image of God equal in worth and dignity as persons, and yet distinct in their womanhood and manhood. Scripture is clear in Galatians 3 that women and men are equally in need of and able to receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Now Ephesians 5 gives a more extensive explanation of marriage and shows that this call to submission is never to be used to force someone to do something sinful or to disobey God. It's never a permit for a husband to act in an unfair, selfish, or abusive way. In fact, if you are in a situation where your household is physically or otherwise abusive, it's important for you to tell someone, a community group leader, a friend, one of the elders, who can help you. Abuse is a sin and must be dealt with. But rather, in Ephesians 5, husbands are called to love their wives sacrificially, even as Christ loves the church and gave up his life for her. Wives are called to respectfully submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Brian Chapel says, Submission does not mean that a wife is to suppress her intelligence, talents, and gifts in the home. Rather, she should fully express these gifts to the purpose of supporting her husband in the spiritual leadership of the home. So this means the freedom to express preferences and opinions with equal dignity and value to your husband, but also graciously deferring to him as he seeks to lead in the ways that he thinks best. And this is a submission to your own husband. So there's a general regard and submission to men's leadership in the church, but the marriage relationship is a unique area for a one wife to submit to her specific husband. And this brings us to the young men. So young men, let me have your full attention now because verse six is specifically addressed to you. And it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Now if any of you are keeping track, you're likely to notice this is a significantly shorter list than the others. Older men have about six things, older women have four things, plus the seven things they're to teach the younger. The young men are just given one thing, be self-controlled. And maybe that makes sense if you've ever parented a boy or been a boy. (laughs) Keeping things simple, focus makes sense, just one thing, self-control. If you can get that, you're good. But Young men, listen. There is a density to this that's important for you to understand. This is not just some demeaning add-on. Like everybody else can multitask, but you can't handle that. Remember, we're talking about the ripple effect of godliness. Each of these lists, including the elders in chapter one, to the older men, the older women, the younger women, it all has self-control on the list. Self-control is like godliness concentrate. Young men, do you know what concentrate is? It's like orange juice concentrate. It's like they take the orange juice and they take all the flavor and the sugar and the acid and the essence of the orange juice and they 
pull all the water out so it's not watered down so you get this little tiny can, it packs a big punch. Bleach concentrate makes the bleach stronger, better at disinfecting. Self-control is like godliness concentrate. And so young men, the point is this, get it. The verse says that you are to be urged to get this, called to it, invited, implored, exhorted. Scripture urges you, your pastors urge you, the church urges you, be self-controlled. Hear the call weekly, in and out. Hear it in the message of the gospel. Young men, follow Christ, who in Philippians 2, 7, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Who, when the devil tempted him in the desert, did not give in to the selfish fleshly temptation to satisfy himself by turning stones to bread, but resisted with the word of God. Who, in the garden of Gethsemane, did not pray, my will be done, but exercise self-control, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, who did not call down 12 legions of angels in Matthew 26 to protect him from the lashing and from the crown of thorns and from the nails. But Hebrews 2, 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Self-control, young men, is central to the gospel. Christ denied himself in all those times, knowing that God would exalt him to the highest place for all eternity, and it would accomplish our redemption. His self-control was driven by an infinitely greater good. And young men, there is a greater good before you. There is the glory of your God to be magnified as you live a life of godliness. There is the strength of the church as you commit yourself to God's word and a call to be a spiritual leader in your community and in your home. Young men, you belong to Christ and he has so much for you to do. He's empowered you through the gospel, so live your life for his glory. How do you expect to become an older man who's sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in love and faith and steadfast? You begin now as a young man pursuing Christ-empowered self-control. You need to press into the things of God. I mean, look at what the world is doing. The world is either selling debauchery or the inane. It's selling you things that are either evil or don't matter. Things that are immoral and th or things that waste your time. Don't be like Esau who sold his inheritance because in the moment he felt hungry. Don't give away your soul and the health of the church for things that are frivolous and fleeting. Be self-controlled. Leave behind TikTok. Memorize scripture. Take back the hours of video games. Suck away and read a book about sound doctrine. Invest in what's lasting. Don't let your phone tell you how long your attention span is supposed to be. Train yourself to focus. Train yourself to use your time wisely. Train yourself to pray for a sustained amount of time. Train yourself to pray out loud so you can lead and set an example for others. others. Exercise Gospel-driven self-control. Build strong relationships. Encourage others toward the Lord. Do you want to be a husband who can lead a godly wife and raise children? Do you want to be a man that a young woman will be willing to submit to in faith and build a home with? Don't waste your time right now. Learn to be self-controlled. Turn away from pornography and distorted sexuality in the world. Live a pure life, denying the flesh, taking delight in your Savior. Learn to manage your life and your resources well so that you can do it in your family and do it in the church. 
Live out Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do what Tim Titus 2 verses 7 and 8 says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. There's your one thing on your list, young men. Okay, it's not fair, but I put the emphasis on this message where I thought it should be and I believe the Lord had for us, so I'm just gonna briefly mention the category of slaves. This is not referring to the kind of slavery that we experienced here in America. Mark Dever says it's helpful to realize that when the New Testament talks about slaves, it's not talking about racially discriminating slavery that America practiced for nearly three centuries. It's talking about a kind of slavery that is surely worse than what we think of as employment, but which is probably closer to our idea of employment than our idea of slavery. So if you're going to apply this passage, you need to think of it as applying to us as employees. So go to work, be respectful, don't argue, don't steal, and live out your faith well. And that brings us to our third point, to testify. Testify to the transforming work of the gospel. Our lives are to testify to the grace of God. Three times in this passage, our lives are linked to the way that the world perceives God and his gospel. In verse five, at the end of the list for the younger women, right after they're called to be submissive to their husbands, we're given a reason for why to live this way. That the word of God may not be reviled. Then in verses seven and eight, our example of good works, integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned is so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse 10, the godly behavior of the believer is so that everything may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Church, our gospel-transformed lives bring glory to God and they shape the way that others see God. Our lives honor God's word and reveal his goodness to our opponents and make salvation attractive. So let your life be a precursor to your evangelism and your evangelism will be strengthened by your godly example. Paul saw it. He saw jailers become brothers, enemies become friends, and the kingdom advanced through the changed lives of the church. And may we see the same. Amen.